0: All right, all right, all right. Here we are in studio. Anthony Smith, lead economist at Freightwaves, Zach Strickland, director of freight market and intelligence. Welcome back to the live in studio version of Freightonomics. Yeah, I know, right? It has been a while. So, uh, you know, today we've got a big show. We've got intermodal and rail expert Mike Baudendistel coming on to tell us all about what's going on in that intermodal market and how it's relating to the freight market in general. Uh, but first things first, Anthony Smith, are you checking the uh, social media account? I'm on account? the socials. And
1: <laughs> the other thing is, is like not only is this our first time back in the studio in some time, but it's an hour long show. Hour long. So I am going to be on the socials. As you mentioned, I'm going to be monitoring LinkedIn for those comments. Facebook as well. So if you see anything, hear anything, want to be a part of the conversation, feel free to chime in. I'm watching closely.
0: Yeah. And again, for those of you that don't know, that may have, you know, this may be your first time on Freightonomics. This is the podcast or show, I should say. I got in trouble for calling it a podcast earlier. uh, That... Is uh, you know a combination of the freight market and the macroeconomic environment, and we combine the two into one big ball of information and intel, so that you can go on about your life, whether you are in the space or not, uh, feeling more knowledgeable about your day, and you can make better decisions thereafter. So, without further ado, we started something last week, Anthony Smith, that I kind of it's kind of sticking with me because I'm a huge meme fan. We talked Mm -hmm. about the Suez Canal last week and that disaster, and it basically uh, did something really unique, and it combined, like it basically pushed freight market stuff into pop culture. The Suez Canal uh, disaster, fiasco, whatever you want to call it, uh, inspired all these memes. I was looking at memes from like Teen Vogue of all places was getting in on this. So whenever you have a situation where the freight market (laughs) intermodal are not uh, just anything involving freight gets into pop culture to that extent and that deeply, it's definitely worth noting. But this week, I've got a few more memes and they're going to be a little bit more trucking centric, trucker centric, uh, because we do have some things coming up that I think are relevant. We got road check week coming up a little bit sooner than normal. Uh, for those of you that are familiar with that particular event, it does have uh, an impact to capacity and the trucking market Traditionally, you see a lot of the owner ops and people come offline, they schedule vacations. This time around may not have as big of an impact because we're talking about a freight market that is extremely hot. Uh, And so shutting your truck down may not make a lot of sense while you can take advantage of a lot of spot rates. But also uh, Road Check Week generally gets timed uh, right around Memorial Day in general, or one of them does. Uh, And so that does really lend itself to, uh, you know, more vacations and, and capacity coming offline so this first meme of the week if you will i guess this will be the you can decide what you want to call this section mm. meme I, of the week. I like i like it yeah so first meme of the week anything in the truck i should know about the dot officer asks to the driver driver says nah just stuff you shouldn't know about dot have a good day sir now, we both know that doesn't happen.
1: <laughs> it would be nice, I'm sure, for many for many drivers. They would love that situation.
0: Right, right. Yeah, so, I mean, that's it's kind of like the week where, you know, the FMCSA get together with a lot of the administration, and they go out and they form these inspections. And it doesn't necessarily make fiscal sense at times for some of these drivers to take that risk because they could get put out of service, et cetera. So they just don't want to be hassled. Also, there's delays to service during that period of time, potentially hours of service regulations. You only have 11 hours of drive time in a given day. So any kind of disruption or deviation can really put you at risk uh, for missing service and service failures, upsetting your customers, etc. And then that's just something that a lot of drivers don't necessarily want to deal with.
1: So, oh, Zach, there's a few factors here because, like you said, it's almost like a vacation in a sense. And you're treating it as if it was almost like a holiday yeah. weekend or something like that. But right. when we look at this, it affects so many different parts. So, I'm sure there are thoughts for carriers or shippers to try to get ahead of this, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, So this next meme, the next meme of the week, if you will, uh, this one is pretty relevant, I think, to a lot of drivers out there. Now, again, 70 hours may be a little bit under (laughs) understated, even, Uh, you know, you know, a lot of those drivers out there that are on the road uh, work pretty much continuously uh, throughout their day, their week, um, really not getting to plan a lot of their schedule that much, especially for some of the larger carrier uh, fleets, you're talking about drivers that don't, you know, they're they're stopping at certain points along the side of the road and they're not working, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? So this, one I think a lot of drivers can relate to, uh, out there who are working, especially right now with capacity being so tight, those hours that those weeks are getting extended. Uh, I have a 70 hour work week. You think that 40, 40 is bad. That's cute. I do think 40 is bad. I think we should definitely par- pare that down, uh, even further. The 30 maybe like five, 10 minutes, you know, okay. see what happens.
1: All right. See that is happens. quite a trim. Yeah, just
0: pay me all the money for doing <laughs> literally nothing. No. Uh, obviously the economy would not find that too productive or healthy.
1: I, I mean, believe. it did for almost a year.
0: <laughs> well, so, well played. Well played. Uh, so the next one I think is more topical to what we're going to talk about today. Once we get Mike Bowden distal on here, uh, you know, you haul how much freight that's cute i always love that that's cute mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying like yeah the intermodal <laughs> train there uh carrying tons of containers uh we've all seen the mile long trains uh and we are going to talk to uh, you know mike about some of the differences between intermodal and van you know truckload capacity super tight um and you know shippers have to look at other options uh yeah. but a lot of the shippers are already in the intermodal space this and we're gonna we're gonna break that down a little bit we're gonna bring on mike here in just a second uh actually let's go ahead and bring on mike so we're ready for the story of the day and that way he can chime in to mike bowden distal welcome to the show thanks for joining it's, us good to see you guys yeah man so mike bowden distal for those that aren't familiar our rail and intermodal expert uh, here at uh, FreightWaves knows pretty much everything there is to know about a train. Intermodal container. I think he sleeps in one. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're looking at you know some sort of facade there in the background of, of his house. But uh, he's going to break down for us a little bit about what the intermodal market is looking like right now. But first things first. Story of the day. Let's get to it. Let's get to it. So this I think is also relevant and pertinent to you, Mike, uh, in the way that we're talking about infrastructure bills. I think that we're going to cover this probably a little bit more in detail on another episode. Uh, but again, I'd like to get your take on what you think about some of this, uh, Mike. So this is a John Gallagher report uh, basically outlining that trucking jobs are going to benefit significantly from this infrastructure bill. Uh, a lot of the uh, employment level and the trucking, uh, you know, environment, uh, whether that be the over the road, back office, uh, you know, situation, the employment levels have not recovered to the way that they were before COVID-19. And now this infrastructure bill, which has a pretty big impact to just everything in the economy in general, from what it looks like, I mean, it is a huge, uh, you know, $1.9 trillion proposal has to go through and get past uh, some of the uh, political Arena uh, is is going to have something to say. There's probably some of that that's going to come back uh, and forth. But the overall general idea here is that our infrastructure in the United States needs a lot of attention. Um, you know, whether you're on the left or the right side or in the middle, uh, that is not a debatable topic. Uh, there's a lot of things that need help and need work, and we need to do something about it. And of course. One of the big beneficiaries of infrastructure on both the you know, economic side, where they can actually you know contribute and be employed by it, as this article outlines, uh, and also in the way that they benefit from it from just having a easier day of, of you know having safer roads uh, and travel networks uh, is trucking. So you know that's that's kind of the big deal uh, that's coming up out of this in a bit. So Mike, I want to ask you. What exactly do you think? Have you have you done any research on this infrastructure bill? And do you think that it's going to have any kind of significant impact on the rail side of things? We just I mean, the article covers truckload. But, you know, I'd like to get your thoughts on what you think about what this infrastructure bill could do to the rail and intermodal side, as well as how it relates to uh, to trucking as well.
2: Yeah, I think it could have a big impact on the rail carload business if you're hauling things like, you know, gravel, sand, those type of so, sort of heavy bulk materials that go into a lot of bridge and road, you know, type of construction. Um, but it's another thing that, you know, when I was reading that um, report or the article by John Gallagher, I mean, the thing that I was thinking about is, you know, are you going to have the the labor? Is there labor going to be available to to handle all those jobs? Because that's something that's been in short supply. There's so much Competition right now for what you would consider, uh, I guess, blue collar type labor, everything from, you know, home construction to, you know, as as we're, you know, so familiar with in in the truck, truck driver, um, you know, situation where there's a shortage of drivers there. And as we learned from the, in the last year, there's been a lack of new drivers coming into the, into the industry because of, um, you know, not having the the capacity in the driver schools and, and, and so forth. But, um, you know, anytime I think you, you know, put a lot of heavy industry to work. There's a lot of that ends up going on the rail car load, you know, side of the side of the business. So it's it's one other thing that I think is gonna, you know, contribute to elevated levels of freight demand and, and ultimately I think, you know, maybe, you know, labor inflation for a lot of those jobs. Yeah. So jobs. That's a big topic That's in the big topic. In world. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. It's been a big topic yeah. for me, especially looking at economic updates, more so on a macro level, but As the article mentioned, this is going to be one of the areas that's really going to impact transportation, not just for roads being improved or improved infrastructure for transportation, but the entire jobs industry. So that's one of the areas throughout the pandemic that has definitely, certainly everyone knows, has been impacted. And this is going to be an area that's going to help add jobs. So Um, a a lot of excitement. And one of the other areas is that I always forget to mention is that when we're looking at the economic movements and we see big things like this, it doesn't always move in unison with the freight market. So we see times of recession. It doesn't necessarily mean that transportation is going to go through a recession. We saw that just now throughout this pandemic. But this is something that we're going to see potentially, if it goes through as it is outlined and planned right now, that it would have a unison or a correlating effect with the current economic environment and growth along with the transportation industry?
0: Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, that's one of the things that's yet to be seen. Obviously the infrastructure bill is months away from getting passed more than likely. Um, and then it has to go through some sort of adoption phase. Things move very slowly. So the chances are that this is not going to have a very near-term impact. Uh, to the market. So it's not going to have any kind of additional, you know, pressure, put any additional pressure on the on capacity with, you know, new freight moving through the system. And as and as Mike, I think you said there, uh, the carload section, probably going to see it before any trucking uh, side thing happens first. Uh, And the carload section, of course, been relatively weak uh, during the pandemic as a lot of that stuff hasn't really moved so well, has it, Mike?
2: No, the rail car loads are still down year over year in sort of stark contrast to uh what we're seeing in the truckload side and on the intermodal side and it's just really sort of kind of the tale of two economies where what a lot of what goes on the rail car load side of the business is heavy industrial uh materials and uh you know last time last year at this time companies were cutting back on their capital budgets and and that really had a big impact on the 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 rail carload side of the business, in addition to certain commodities like coal, which is down. I mean, the one side of the rail carload business that's that's way up is is grain. Um, you know, there's lots of demand to move grain, but you know, aside from that, um, in, in total, the, the rail carload side of the business is still down. And and there are other you know parts of it that that are having their own issues, like the you know motor vehicles, which is um, struggling with the the semiconductor shortage. Those uh, volumes have been down double digits.
0: Yeah, uh, so the carload section uh, of, of rail, when we talk about it, we kind of talk about rail into two, you know, it's like bifurcated into two sections. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the carload section is very heavily tied to that industrial production number that Anthony likes to talk about. Uh, you know, we see a lot of the raw materials, things like coal, rock, gravel, chemicals, things of that nature go through uh, the carload side of things for rail, uh, coal used to be one of the, actually, it still is one of the largest commodities shipped on a train, uh, and it was essentially a cash cow for the rail uh, operators. Now, intermodal volumes, which is what we're going to dive into today, the containers, the, all that stuff on the Suez Canal, uh, on the Evergiven, uh, on Evergreen's Evergiven. Uh, how we didn't talk about that more last week, I don't know. <laughs> but the. Uh, you know, that is intermodal containers. Most of those, of course, were 20 and 40 foot containers. Uh, We call those international volumes. uh, And some of the stuff you see hauled on trucks, which Mike is going to give us kind of a background on that real quick. Uh, What that, you know, that's the stuff that we see more domestically on trucks. So Mike, why don't we start off there? Why don't we define what the intermodal uh, space is. For those that aren't necessarily as familiar uh, as you, uh, kind of break down the basics of it. Tell us, you know, what does it mean to be an intermodal carrier? Uh, does it go on rail? Does it go on a truck? How What? How does that work? What is What is intermodal?
2: So intermodal uh, basically is a movement that travels on two different transportation modes. And the way we describe it, it's always, almost always talking about uh, moving on the rail for the long haul portion of the move and then moving, uh, on a truck on the shorter haul, either first or last mile in you know, a portion of the move, uh, from a rail ramp, uh, to the, you know, the destination of, of, of where it's going. So you're really talking about a move where because of the length of haul and because to, to take advantage of the, the lower, um, you know, per mile economics of railroad when something is moving over a long, long length of haul. The rail is carrying the container or trailer on the long haul portion of the move. And so the whole you know, reason for its existence is to save you know, shippers a little bit of money. It's sort of the, the typical target is 10 to 15% savings off of a comparable, you know, truckload move is is typically you know, what you know, shippers are kind of looking for and usually what, where the marketplace you know, tends to tends to go. Um, and then within you know intermodal. You know, you really have to break down um you know intermodal into two distinct segments. There's international intermodal and domestic intermodal. And international intermodal is moving the same containers that go on the the container ship line. So those would be the same containers that were on something like that that ever ever given um uh you know ship, and 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 those would go typically directly from the port on um Onto a railroad and and taking on the rail for the long haul portion of the of the move. So those would be 20 foot or 40 foot containers, and those are containers that are leased or owned by the container ship lines. And that's in contrast to domestic intermodal, which are uh, is intermodal that's moved in the same in containers that only containers that only stay in North America. So those would typically be 53 foot containers or or trailers. So it's domestic. Equipment and you know a lot of those that domestic equipment does um, you know can contain imported goods that's taken out of the international containers and put in domestic containers but it's moved uh, domestically in equipment that that never leaves North America and that's a pretty um, significant distinction because international volumes tend to be driven um, you know by a lot of uh, the, the maritime data. Uh, you know, things like, you know, maritime import shipments, the volumes of, uh, con- containers coming through the ports, you know, th- those things. And they tend to be on, you know, longer contracts between the, um, the-, the shipping lines and the railroad. They tend to be multi-year contracts. Uh, you know, domestic, on the other hand, um, you know, there, there is a lot of imports there, but there's also a lot of just purely domestic, uh, shipments. And that's really what we're, what we talk about when we talk about, you know, taking trucks off the road and, you know, utilizing, uh, intermodal. Instead of truck, um, in order to save, you know, fuel costs or to lower your carbon footprint and and, and and those type of things. So, Mike, looking at the comments here, got a quick question.
1: Sidetrack a little bit. Janet Turner asks, "Do you find freight moves as safe on the rail versus total over the road?"
2: Do, do I find them as safe? Is that what you said?
1: Yes. Do you find
0: freight moves as safe on the rail versus total over the road? So, claims. I'm assuming she's talking about claims and, and liability oh, uh, things of that. Gotcha. Nature okay
2: well i I would say that there is you know some i'd say elevated risk of damage in intermodal um you know now with intermodal the the trains are moved differently you don't have the same type of you know yards you know you don't use you know what, what are called hump yards which you know can can actually you know the rails cars hit each other they, they, those aren't used in intermodal but because there are multiple points of handling intermodal does have a little bit more potential for damage i mean I think those issues have, have sort of become, you know, lower, you know, over the years. Um, so I, th- I think, you know, in, in terms of, you know, damage to goods from that perspective, um, you know, maybe it's a little bit elevated of a risk in, in, in intermodal, but I think, you know, from a shipper's perspective, the bigger risk is that um, the the goods won't get there in time or the, because the intermodal does typically take longer. I mean, intermodal, I, you know, just mentioned that that's, you know, at a discount to truckload typically 10 to 15% somewhere in there. Um, but what a shipper is giving up is typically one extra day in transit. So you typically think about an intermodal move as being truckload plus a day. So, you know, Chicago to Dallas instead of two days, maybe it takes three days. Um, but then the other risk would be that the, the, the ships, uh, shipments are not at a consistent, you know, basis where it would be fine if, it, you know, every third day that shipment would arrive, but you can't have a situation where some days it's, it's sometimes it's two, two days, it's four days.
0: Yeah, so the intermodal uh, sector, you know, you have a lot more handling in the intermodal section, I think is really what it breaks down to is, you know, you can get it off of a ship uh, and then it has to get onto, you know, a rail uh, car or, or 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 a truck even. And then, you know, then you have another potential transloading portion where it does get transferred off of that uh, as well. So, I mean, that's, you know, basically what we're talking about here is, you know, it is more efficient because it's traversing a longer distance uh, without being disturbed, um, without traffic, without all these other factors kind of influencing it on a train that basically has a very uh, dedicated infrastructure. Uh, you know, Los Angeles to Chicago, for instance, the l- single largest intermodal lane in the in the United States, uh, you know, is or the, you know, the largest in terms of total volume a- and then you know, once it gets off the the train there, it generally will get onto a truck or transloaded into something, put in a warehouse, et cetera, around all these DCs. So uh, it, there there is a there's a trade off here. Uh, what I think you're saying is it boils down to uh, essentially cost and service to an extent. Uh, but I, I think our. our viewer here uh, has a pretty good uh, question as well in terms of like noticing that there's actually also a little bit of extra handling that's going to increase their uh, the claims issues as well is that correct Mike
2: that, that's right yeah so I, I think anytime there's more sort of points of handling there's there's more that can that can go wrong and I, and I think that's part of the the value that on the domestic intermodal side a company like JV Hunt or hub group or Schneider sort of sort of some of the value that they add is that they, ha- they they're in charge of consolidating those multiple points of handling. So they're consolidating the building, they're consolidating any, you know, sort of damage claim and, and, and those type of things, Being you know, having one point of contact for the shipper to be responsible uh, for all those different, you know, points of handling, um, I think adds a lot of value to the shippers. And that's part of the reason why I think over the years that, um, you know, those companies have handled the, the marketing uh, for the domestic uh, intermodal.
0: The one thing about intermodal that i think it really relies on is consistency so intermodal volumes uh, they need consistent volume they need consistent freight the you know railroad providers will add cars uh, here and there uh, but you really need to have this kind of consistent movement as a shipper to commit to intermodal because it is more uh, it's almost somewhat dedicated is it not mike
2: yeah. So the, the shippers that tend to use, you know, intermodal, they, they do tend to be a lot of the larger shippers. Um, so, you know, you would think of a lot of the, the shippers that would use intermodal are also using, you know, dedicated, you know, truckload services. So, um, you know, those would be, you know, shippers like Walmart, Target, you know, Home Depot, um, you know, Ashley Furniture. So it's a lot of these household names that are either retailers or, um, you know, CPG companies, you know, companies like General Mills. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to move, still hard to move, you know, uh, refrigerated. You know, goods in, in intermodal for the most part. Um, but, you know, for, for CPG companies that have move, moving goods that don't need to be refrigerated, like boxes of cereal, I think it's, it's pretty ideal. I mean, a lot of those will travel, you know, a long length of, of haul, but, you know, you touch on something that's important is, is really the key thing with intermodal is density. And so when you look at, uh, density maps for intermodal, they're much more concentrated in those key corridors, like your LA to Chicago, LA to Dallas um You know, Chicago to to to, to Dallas, um, L.A. to Atlanta. Those those you know s- corridors that are anchored by sort of mega cities on you know either side, and that's important because you really need a lot of density in order to fill up a train with intermodal you know trailers or containers. Um And, and so that's why you know inter- intermodal is never going to be sort of the the solution for. Uh, a truck capacity shortage because it's really only relevant in you know certain situations so, you know things that are less time sensitive and in corridors that have a tremendous amount of density
0: yeah. So it's not necessarily it's not going to have you can't move freight from, uh, say, Greenville, South Carolina to Wichita, Kansas. Or I guess you could in some former fashion, but you're going to have to take kind of a, a zigzag pattern in terms of getting it trucked to the railhead and then move it on a rail to somewhere. I don't know where exactly, you know, the networks more than I do. Um, and, the, uh, you know, I, I think that's really what the. Uh, The point is, is that, you know, these intermodal containers are good at filling like this gap of the long haul trucking sector where it is extremely difficult uh, to manage networks, over the road networks, uh, you know, Los Angeles to New York, Uh, especially if you're coming in like the ports, like we've seen over the last year, Los Angeles being such a, you know, overwhelmed uh, vessel there out there in the, uh, you know, on the Southern California, Los Angeles Long Beach, really not able to handle a lot of the volumes uh, that are coming in. So the tr- the rail does perform a pretty useful service in terms of keeping that capacity at least somewhat available uh, on the long haul side and the over the road stuff, especially for your larger shippers, larger accounts uh, like your Walmarts and whatnot. Now, one of the big stories of the year has been the container issue. Now, a lot of people may or may not know about what it means to have empty container imbalances, you know, in China. Uh, a lot of the uh, you know the exporters here in the United States are obviously very familiar. You touched on the grain uh, side there with a with the carload guys. Can you explain a little bit about what it means domestically to have this container imbalance that we currently have in the United States uh and all, well just globally. Uh what does it mean, you know, in truckload there's like backhaul headhaul and in rail containers it's basically empties and loaded. Is that
2: correct? Yeah, so I'll just take a step back and explain why there's this this huge um you know imbalance is is really you know China and other parts of Asia are the manufacturer of the of the world. And you know, the biggest consumption center in the world is the United States. And even think about where people live in the United States, about 45% of us live in the Eastern time zone. And then about one third live in the central time zone. And the biggest you know, port of entry is LA and Long Beach, which is about one third of all of our imports. And so uh, imports come into the United States, um, you know, thousands of miles, oftentimes from where, uh, they're, they're headed. And so that's, you know, what has brought in, you know, the, the, you know, intermodal is being having an opportunity is because those goods have to travel, have to travel long distances. Um, but because the U.S., you know, imports so much more than it exports that, um, you know, you can imagine that there's a lot more, uh, goods need to go from, you know, the port of, ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach to say, Chicago and New York then is going back, you know, the opposite direction, um, and and so that's that's always the case, and um, you know, this past year it's gotten to be even more of the case than is is typical because um, you know COVID, you know, surprised everyone, and and everyone when COVID hit, everyone thought we were going to have this severe recession, you know, myself included, um, because that's what happened in 2008 during the financial crisis. People bought less of everything. Um, you know, I don't think people were expecting that, you know, the government was going to give such big, you know, st- stimulus, um, you know, benefits and, and, and other types of benefits to keep people to to spend, you know, even more. I think everyone was surprised by that. So everyone was, you know, had, had sort of ordered too little of everything throughout the supply chain. And, um, you know, as a result, uh, you know, now uh, in the last few months, there's, there's been this attempt to, to catch up on, um, on, on imports. And so there's been this, this tremendous, you know, elevated demand for, 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 for imports to get inventories, you know, replenished. And, you know, when, when getting those good, those imported goods to, let's say the Midwest or, or Eastern consumption centers, you know, they don't have to come through LA and Long Beach. They can, you know, go through the Suez Canal or they can go through the Panama Canal and go all water route to the, to the East Coast. And that's usually a lot cheaper. Um, but it's also a lot slower and um you know time was uh of the essence uh the last several months because inventories were so depleted and it's you can't sell something you know with, without the goods being on the shelf and so there was this big preference to move uh goods through the the ports of of l a even more so than there than there typically are um and 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 taking those those goods by either you know train or or truck to the the destinations and so the the west coast ports Gained a lot of market share, um, but it also meant that there was a greater you know, imbalance in, in containers because, um, you know, the, the ships that come in through the East Coast ports, those are closer to consumption centers. that the, the containers don't have to go as, as far. They don't have to, to travel, uh, return uh, empty, you know, as often. Um, but the containers that, that, you know, come in through the, the West Coast loaded, let's say go to Chicago and, and go back to the West Coast um, empty. You know, that's been, um, you know, a a bigger imbalance than is typically the case. And the reason now it's been such a big issue is that there's been a a shortage of those international containers. Um, you know, like there's been a shortage of a lot of things and and there's just a a, a small, the 20 and 40 foot container. Exactly. Exactly. The the 20s and 40s that are, they're manufactured in China. Um, they're owned and leased by the steamship uh, companies. And um, you know those are, are ones that you know go on the the ship, and then they also go on on, on the rail. And you know what, um, you know the grain shippers we mentioned them earlier, but you know some of those grain shippers will take advantage of those that imbalance that I just described to fill those containers uh, with grain for export. Um, you know, so they you know because they're going going back to the west coast you know anyway, um, but they they've have have had a hard time doing that lately because the 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 steamship companies they don't make a lot of money on the backhaul they make all their money on the on the on the headhaul and so it was to their advantage to just say you know we're not we're not um, going to wait for those uh, containers to be filled with exports return them empty we'll give up that revenue what we don't want to do is is give up revenue on the on the headhaul and so that's um, you know created an issue for a lot of uh, you know grain exporters um, you know at a at a period of time when there's a lot of demand. Or grain exports, um, as China is trying to rebuild its hog population, um, following the, the African swine uh, fever that, um, that really decimated their hog population. So Mike, Zach,
1: I have to pause the show real quick because we have to thank someone. Oh, yeah. We have to thank someone. I know it may have scared you a little bit. We have to thank someone. We have to thank Amazon Freight. Thanks to our sponsor, Amazon Freight, who knows you need more than another truckload service provider. You need a partner who can help you navigate the world of logistics and plan for the future. Amazon Freight is helping shippers move their freight simply and reliably while backed by the innovation and expertise that is in the DNA of Amazon. Whether you have a few truckloads to fill or thousands to move, Amazon Freight is your opportunity to put Amazon to work for you. Visit freight.amazon.com to get started.
0: Yeah, Right on, yeah, almost uh, got to slide that in there amongst the, uh, the conversation about intermodal. So Mike, <laughs> I want to, uh, you know, show the audience exactly what we're talking about in terms of overall intermodal volumes. And I want to back up a little bit. We we're talking about the containers, uh, creating imbalances and, and you know, backhaul and headhaul on the maritime side. But I want to show the audience, uh, you know, a sonar chart here showing, you know, where intermodal volumes are, especially, you know, compared to previous years. And honestly, Mike, I, I, it doesn't look like it's a dramatic increase uh, in, you know, in terms of year over year growth. And, you know, can you kind of add some color to this in terms of like, tell me like, am I missing something or is this just kind of a, an issue of some sort of scaling, but it doesn't look like we've really missed out on too much intermodal activity, What what's happening here?
2: Yeah, so that graph that you're looking at is the total intermodal container. So, so the, and we're comparing that to the last few years. And so, you know, if you compare it to 2020, you know, we're, we're way up, you know, over 20%, um, higher than 2020. But you remember, you know, last year, uh, things sort of shut down in, in, in March and there was this really sort of depressed period, um, you know, at this, at, at, the, at the last spring. So, um, you know, you're right. When you compare that to 2019 and 2018, there's really not all that much, all that much growth. And that's been, you know, kind of in contrast to historically intermodal was, the, the the avenue for growth in the railroad industry i mean the, the you know bulk of what railroads move you know when we talk about things like grain and and coal and scrap steel and, and and even you know building products and those things they're typically not you know commodities where there is normally a lot of a lot of growth um with the exception of of certain cycles and and, and things but but intermodal was was something different because it's a it's a relatively you know new you know, service. And so that had been sort of the growth area, you know, in the railroad industry. And, but really, sort of the last five, you know, four or five years, um, you know, it really hasn't grown, you know, very much. It's, it's grown less than the economy and less than other, you know, areas of transportation. And I, and I think that, you know, the reason for that is that the, the, the railroads um, have been, you know, mostly focused on lowering their, their operating ratio or, or improving their margins because that's what, uh, the investment community was, was most focused on. And, um, you know, that sort of means taking, you know, prices up every year, regardless of what the, um, you know, the economy is, 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 is doing and, and what, what the capacity situation, you know, is and, um, you know, not necessarily investing for, for, for growth. And, you know, in, in some cases, you know, rationalizing. You know, lanes and, and, and facilities and, and actually removing, you know, capacity from, from, from intermodal. So, so, so intermodal has, has lagged, um, you know, some of the other areas of, of, of transportation. Now that might, um, you know, start to change with this, you know, uh, transaction with, you know, Canadian Pacific acquiring Kansas City Southern. Um, you know, one of the things I liked about that deal is that it was, uh, you know, pro growth. I mean, it's, it's really, uh, something where they, they talked about the, the synergies coming from, uh, you know, revenue synergies rather than cost synergies. And, and I think that one, you know, good example of that is, you know, sh- sort of that Chicago to Dallas corridor where, um, you know, because the, the, the two rail lines were under different, um, you know, managements and ownerships on, on different sides of Kansas City. Now, if you bring all that under, under one umbrella, you can invest in a unified manner. And I think uh, with, with, intermodal, um, you know, that's, that's one thing that could uh, create uh, more, uh, opportunities for growth.
0: Yeah, so I think uh, you know the inter, especially the rail side, they don't necessarily invest in a lot of growth. They've been talking about you know uh, precision r- scheduled railroading, which is a very uh, cost-oriented uh, side of things. Again, this is infrastructure that is basically locked in place, heavily regulated. Uh, so <clears throat> it's difficult, I think, at times to you know invest in growth. And I think what you're saying is right in terms of the uh, the merger there, the potential merger uh, if it goes through that. You know you can connect now the whole north american continent on a single rail line uh, i think there's a pretty significant advantage uh, to shippers in that regard do you agree
2: yeah i think it's pretty interesting for shippers um and you know we haven't heard from too many shippers as to what they think of the deal yet i mean what they they have said is that they want the surface transportation board to at a minimum investigate um you know it the the deal from you know a number of different you know angles and you know you know consider you know consider it a, a major transaction and you know, not give Kansas City Southern a free pass because they said the service transportation board said they would do that, you know, 20 something, you know, years ago. Um, you know, the industry has changed a lot since then. So they, they sort of needs to be looked at as, um, the blockbuster deal that it was, you know, second largest, uh, deal of, of all time. So, um, you know, I, I think that though, um, uh, most shippers do, I think we'll ultimately be, you know, supportive of the, of, of the deal. I mean, it'll be interesting to see if any come out of the woodwork and say, actually, my, um, you know, rail options has, has declined. It's gone from three railroads to two railroads. I mean, the, the, the railroads themselves will say, well, no, there's, there's no cases at all where that's the case. And, and in fact, in some cases, it's going from two railroad options to, to, to three railroad options. But, but I think of, you know, the, the argument that you extend the customer's reach with those two railroads. Under one um, umbrella, I mean, you could have something like, uh, you know, uh, grain movements from you know, Canada to, to Mexico that never would have made sense before, or grain exports from the central, instead of the heartland of the U S, you know, out through the port of, you know, Vancouver, whereas that might not have made sense, you know, before. So I think in, in, in general, it's, it's compelling for a lot of different uh, shippers, uh, in the, the grain industry, as well as automotive and, uh, intermodal.
0: Yeah, I think the automotive industry for sure uh, tends to uh, benefit from that potentially a little bit more so than some of the other uh, commodities that are out there. So, you know, I, I kind of want to, you know, fast forward a little bit into what we're looking at in terms of how does this interconnect and how does this relate to the the broader freight market? Like what can we, what insights can we derive uh, from intermodal volumes uh, in the United States? You know, we have the domestic, you know what an international container is now. What, what, what is out there right now that can help people that maybe not, uh, you know, they may not be a shipper or involved in, you know, some sort of trucking or maybe they are in trucking. What can they derive from, you know, these intermodal volumes and the various aspects of freight movement on intermodal, whether it be domestic, an empty container moving from Los Angeles to Chicago and back and forth? What what are some of the uh, the key indicators that you can pull out of uh, intermodal?
2: So I think the, the volume that's coming in through the various ports, um, you know, to, to begin with, it's, it's at an elevated level. It's, it's, you know, still far higher than, you know, we've seen the last, the last few years. And so, you know, a trucking company, um, is going to have plenty of opportunity to move, uh, containers just, even not just on the highway, you know, from, you know, any of the port cities. Uh, you know, the, the West Coast ports are still, you know, congested. So probably the easiest place in the world to get, you know, Loaded if your um you know trucking company would be you know near the the ports of l a and 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 long beach um and and so the 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 west coast ports because so much volume is coming out of there you know that's gonna be um just a, a place for for carriers to get a lot of a lot of volume um and then for 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 shippers um you have to sort of take into account that you know moving Goods, you know, eastbound is going to be, you know, more difficult than it typically is, but moving goods westbound should be easier than it, than it typically is. And, you know, we have a, a data series in sonar for intermodal, you know, spot rates. Um, it's the INTRM ticker for those of you who that, that use sonar. Um, you know, there the, 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 the rates from the West Coast ports, you know, inland on the major lanes, a lot of those are up you know over 100% year over year but the ones going back west um you know lanes like uh you know Elizabeth New Jersey to Chicago or um Atlanta to Los Angeles or Dallas to Los Angeles those are those are down and in some cases they're less than a dollar a mile including fuel surcharge so it's something that that sh- even shippers that that don't typically use intermodal you know, might keep in, in, in mind and, um, for, for the, the domestic shippers, you know, the, those containers, um, are, are not in as short a supply as the international containers, although there's, you know, capacity issues there, you know, on the head hall as well, but, you know, it could create opportunities for shippers to, um, you know, on, 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 on sort of the back walls. Um, yeah, what we're looking at now, um, that, that's on the screen is, the um, international container volume on the left and domestic container volume on the right, and that's one of the advantages of uh, the data in, in, in Sonar. As we, we break we break that down, and, and you can see that it's it's really the the volume has been weighted towards um, the international side of of, of volume, and, and that's really been a result of the the high you know import um, import volumes as as well as the greater market share of the West Coast ports because. A much larger percentage of imports that come through the West Coast end up going uh, on the r- rail lines and, and moved intermodally than, than those that go through the East Coast ports. Most of the ones that come through the East Coast ports would be, you know, within a one-day truck of uh, their their ultimate destination. So a lot of those would be would be trucks. But um, you know, we have seen you know stock analysts and um, you know take take up their estimates for you know companies like you know JB Hunt and and, and Hub Group and um, you know really the the right side of that chart, you know, domestic, that's their market. Um, it's it's you know less related to the international side of, of things. So, Mike,
1: more of a macro question on trends and recent events. <clears throat> Excuse me, I have a comment here. Zach Rogers said last summer we were seeing reports of a lot of firms storing inventory. Sorry. <coughs> voice is cutting up. Zach? Yeah.
0: <laughs> Yeah, I'll go ahead and 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 take over real quick. So I think basically, you know, what we're saying is, you know, Anthony needs water, uh, but the, 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 more than that is that we, uh, you know, you're talking about these firms like JB Hunt, Knight Swift, Schneider. They all have intermodal uh, divisions, um, and we're starting to see, you know, the domestic side is you know cranking along right now, uh, and that side is is looking up. Uh, over the next year. I mean, there's a lot of, there's continued growth on the maritime side. We've got import demand uh, significantly growing uh, year over year and it continues to show a a toward pace and that's going to continue to fuel a lot of these intermodal volumes. Now, uh, a lot of that spillover will go into domestic freight and of course the domestic intermodal section, um, you know, with the 53 footers and, and whatnot. So, you know, I think a good use case for for some of these intermodal volumes is just kind of seeing the overall health of the sector itself. Like as we see, you know, we see we don't have as wide of a band of, you know, in terms of capacity, in terms of overall growth and decline, intermodal is a relatively stable sector of transportation in the freight market. So even a little bit of growth is a pretty decent signal of uh, health in the overall transportation economy. Uh, and, And some of these you know, with the maritime side, you know, container freight fuels container freight. So a lot of the maritime freight does come on into the, you know, country, it stays on the container or it gets transloaded into another container because it's, you know, it needs to be palletized uh, to get into a dry van or or some other type of equipment more than likely. Uh, And on those containers, sometimes they'll just cram them in and just floor load the heck out of it. And, uh, you know, and keep that stuff going. So I, I think looking at both international and domestic is a good way of saying, okay, so the international side, that stuff doesn't necessarily translate immediately into trucking. Uh, The domestic side kind of, you know, complements trucking to an extent, especially on the longer haul uh, type environment. But the 20s and 40s, don't necessarily, I don't think, compete as, as much with the trucking side as they would, but it also is a pretty good leading indicator into the overall freight market in terms of freight volume growth, freight health in general. Do you agree with uh, that kind of summary?
2: <laughs> yeah, I would say that certainly the domestic side of intermodal is much more relevant to the truckload industry, um, particularly the long haul truckload um, market. And so, you know, sometimes I like to look at the domestic uh container volume that we have and compare those to long haul trucking to see you know as one sort of gaining share versus another, which I think sometimes is an indicator of, you know, are shippers actually finding, you know, value in, in intermodal that they would uh you know use, you know, intermodal and you know, rather than, than than truck and if the service is not good, then they would, you know, use intermodal, you know, even with a even with a steep discount. Um but yeah, I would agree with, you know, the things you said there
0: deal, and we've got Anthony back. So, Anthony, would you like to uh, continue your question now that you've
1: been properly uh, hydrated? I'm hydrated, and I'm ready to go, Zach.
0: You should drink more water. I gotta
1: take my own advice, drink more water. <laughs> but I had a question from our very own Zach Rogers, or Z2, saying that last summer, we were seeing a lot of reports of some firms storing inventory on intermodal cars to delay putting the product into warehouses where capacity is tight and the costs have been out of control. Warehousing is still pretty strained are we still seeing intermodal rail, which is a little bit cheaper than warehouse right now or a little bit cheaper right now, used as a way to pro- postpone the movement of inventory
2: in in terms of intermodal containers no, I think that's a that's a more relevant comment for some of the the rail car load you know side of the business whereas the whereas on the rail car load side. There is an excess of a lot of pieces of equipment, a lot of certain you know, types of rail cars. There's the, the numbers of rail cars and storage is still you know, at a very high level. But when you talk about you know, intermodal equipment and sort of the, the main you know, capacity constraint there is often the number of containers. If you sort of knew the number of domestic containers and had perfect you know, visibility into how quickly those containers are turned, you know, that's they're they t- trying to try to turn them about twice a month that tends to be a pretty good indicator of um, the you know capacity out there but you know no not seeing a lot in, of, of storage in you know intermodal equipment there may be some of that still in the rail car load um, in the rail carload side of the business because there is uh, an excess of equipment there there really is not anymore in uh, intermodal
0: yeah that's that's interesting because we were talking about how warehousing capacity has been so constrained here over the last little bit and we heard a lot of people kind of sitting on some of these containers uh and you know with the container shortage situation it doesn't feel like the most economical path and a lot of these you know service providers are probably not going to let you get away with that as much as they may have in the past especially as they were you know they're probably trying to control their equipment a little bit more so i want to bring up you know one of your your charts here from Sonar, uh, talking about the inbound international rail container volume. Uh, now, this is, you know, a pretty good illustration of, you know, the container imbalance. So you've got inbound uh, rail vo- loaded volumes, international volumes going into Los Angeles, and you've got outbound or inbound empties going into Los Angeles. Now, this is something that Henry Byers brought to our attention the other day, um, you know, and it's it basically shows you know, the relationship of how the empties are now outpacing the inbound loaded volumes. And that to me is, is astonishing, uh, you know, with all this inbound, uh, you know, there's just not enough. I think it's a good illustration of how there's just not enough freight going back out west right now. And to me, this insight, uh, especially for the domestic trucking providers should be a pretty good warning sign of things to come, uh, or at least, a, uh, you know, uh, at least in the near term. A pretty big warning sign when the rails are having so much trouble or so many empties going back into the Los Angeles market uh, that it's outpacing the loaded volumes that to me signals that they trucking uh, truckload providers or carriers in general are going to have trouble servicing that side of the country. Do you think that that's true? Do you think we're seeing some sort of like early warning sign for what might be a pretty uh, tight market out there on the West Coast once
2: again? Yes, certainly it's a tight market on the West Coast. I think that you know what we're looking at there specifically is the inbound international containers in that are empty in blue and then the international uh, inbound containers in Los Angeles that are loaded in green. And so really, you have two things going on there. You have that imbalance of freight where more is going you know, eastbound and going back westbound, and that's even more true now than it it typically is. But then also because of the global container shortage uh, for the the steamship lines, they want those containers back quickly, even if they're empty. So the, the container ship lines are less concerned about lots of equipment returning to them empty and losing out on, you know, a little bit of backhaul revenue as long as they get that equipment, you know, back, Quickly, so they can get more of the of the headhaul of the headhaul loads, and so um, you know the, the reason that's that's flipped, um, you know, really it's been because of the the container ship lines have, have wanted it that way, and and they're the ones with the contracts with the railroads, are the ones that are leasing you know that equipment. Um, so, it's, so it's a lot of that is is coming from the the, the container ship lines, in addition to a lack of of freight that's going back west, but the, the shippers that are sort of left out in the cold are those that, you know, need those containers for for export of, of things like, uh, you know, export grain.
0: Yeah. So, it, it, you know, obviously the maritime container, the people that own the maritime containers are the maritime providers, the carriers, the Maersks, and, uh, you know, the people like there's freight forwarders out there that also uh, control or lease some of these containers, these 20 and 40 foot international containers as well. So that, that's interesting to me. So it's not necessarily that, we, you know, the domestic truckload providers should take this as a big warning, but it's more of a uh, result of a lot of the maritime providers really kind of ignoring uh, some of the opportunities uh, on the backhaul side just to get those empties back to, uh, to China. Is that right?
2: That's exactly right. It's okay. it's it's all about the you know global container shortage and the need to get those back to China so they can get reloaded again so they can have more, uh, you know, goods that are manufactured in China and and, and imported to the U.S.
0: Yeah. So I want to bring up one more uh, chart uh, from Sonar here today for you to kind of walk us through. This is the intermodal savings index. So. Uh, you know this. You you touched on this earlier a little bit by saying that there's typically a target of around 10 to 15 percent of savings. Uh, walk us through what this chart tells us about what's going on right now uh, with the uh, intermodal to uh, truckload side.
2: Yeah. So it shows that uh, based on this data, uh, shippers are saving 14 percent of their freight bill using intermodal. And you know what I liked about uh, what our, our data science team you know, did here is that we're comparing you know contract rates, which you know as we know contract rates um, comprise you know mo- contract uh, loads comprise most of the the truckload and intermodal, and um, we're only comparing lanes with the same three-digit zip origin and destination, and so that's really important for for intermodal because the um, you know cost per mile. Is is much higher at origin and destination, and and so you you can't really you know compare you know freight that's not you know originating terminating really in the same spot, Um, and and so we're doing it down to the the three digit the three digit zip, and you know based on uh, you know this uh, the contract saving of fourteen percent it shows that the the market is acting you know rationally, Um, and then the other uh, you know takeaway here is is we saw that over the last year. You know fluctuate from say twelve percent go all the way down to single digits and then hit a peak near seventeen percent before settling into fourteen percent so you know my my perception is that shippers can save more using intermodal when there's a tight freight market and they save less uh during a during a loose you know freight market um you know because when the 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 you know freight domestic freight market is 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 tight um you know the service may you know break down a little bit and then it's it's you know you have to have a larger savings in order to move something uh you know via via intermodal where you could have even a worse you know service than 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 truckload. But you know conversely when the domestic freight markets are loose and there's plenty of trucks and plenty of capacity, um, you know if 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 truck rates are low, you might as well just use a you know, you know, go by truck and there's you know there's there's less incentive to 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 move it um you know via Intermodal, so um, it, it it seems like based on that metric, we're sort of settling into to, to something that, that that looks rational. Yeah. So, and again, I, I would also I, say that it, it, one more point is I would I would also say that you know, the, the truckload, you know, rates are more volatile than intermodal rates, which is also part of the reason why that spread can can fluctuate. So, in a, in a week. Rate market the truckload rates will fall much more than intermodal rates and and, and they'll rise more than intermodal rates when uh, things are tight
0: yeah so intermodal's a little bit more stable consistent but you know after this after the dust settles with the pandemic in twenty twenty one it looks like we're in this pattern for for at least the foreseeable future for the moment um, do you think that intermodal might you know kind of fall out a little bit more uh, after 2021. We've seen, you know, you talked about how some of the financial sector is kind of upping their value a little bit, their valuations. This year looks to be quite robust overall. Uh, And I know that some of them have increased their rates, uh, their contract rates uh, as well. They're a little bit slower or more sluggish to do so than the the truckload providers. Do you think that this might be a headwind in the future uh, for Intermodal, or do you think they're gonna maintain some resilience?
2: I think a lot of it is going uh, going to have to do with uh, the service levels. I think if intermodal can have a service level that's truck like, then it will um you know at least maintain share, if not gain some share, um but uh you know if if it doesn't then you know you, you could see truck you know outpace intermodal in, in terms of volume. And then there's this also the the push by you know many companies to Um, you know, be more environmentally friendly and have one more bullet point on their, their ESG slide. And, and, and certainly, I mean, take, taking truck load and, you know, use, you know, using intermodal instead for those loads that make sense. Um, you know, it's about half of the fuel surcharge. I mean, you you can't deny that it's a more environmentally friendly solution. And, you know, every company now, it seems like they spend half their investor relations deck talking about their ESG, you know, credentials. And, 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 and so that, you know, maybe benefit, you know, intermodal, but I think if you're in charge of, um, you know, goods in a supply chain, you know, the biggest thing that you're concerned about is that the goods are going to, are going to be there and you're not going to have to shut down a production line. Um, you know, if they cost a little bit more, that's less of a problem for you than if the goods don't get there at all. So I, it, it really has to come down to, to, to service, I think, going forward. And I think in some cases you're, you know, like with the, the CP and Kansas City Southern, you know deal you'll you'll see in, in in some cases that you know that 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 investment is going to you know you know increase but um you know in in other cases uh you know maybe the rails will, will still be concerned about the, the the operating ratio to the extent that you know you don't have the those uh you know type of investments or you know the the intermodal won't be priced uh, in a way that's really the way that it should be to attract uh, incremental volume oh. so <clears throat>
1: mike As you know, I always like to look at one of the goods that you cover within rail intermodal, and that's going to be looking at the industrial and manufacturing segment. In the last moment here, last minute or so, I'm interested in hearing what you're seeing on your side of the the analysis, because with manufacturing, I'm seeing ongoing and continuous expansion slowly but surely. Are you seeing anything of evidence on your side?
2: I think it's a little bit you know different on a um you know sector by sector basis. I think there are some areas that are extremely hot like the um you know housing you know industry um where you're seeing just lots of you know you know building products uh you know move on on the railroad. Um you know most of that is is on the rail carload side of the business rather than you know intermodal. Um and then another area that I think is is really hot is is anything related to agriculture I mean, you've seen that the agriculture uh prices you know really you know shoot up um and a, and a lot of that is is related to to exports, which is sort of driving uh, a lot of the um, the, the movement there, um, and and you know this push to you know, have more you know plant based you know foods is having having an impact there too. But I think you know over over the last you know year, there's been a you know big decline in uh, capital expenditures. But I do think a lot of the companies are, are ramping their capital expenditures back up, which should help the industrial economy.
0: Yeah, that's good stuff. So. Thank you again for joining us, Mike. Uh, I learned a lot about the intermodal sector. Uh, Myself, Anthony Smith. Uh, I know you did. <laughs> I learned a ton. And I know yeah. you learned that you need to drink more water. got to drink more water. Uh, I always tell people drink more water. Yeah. And, and thank you all for uh, for tuning in uh, this week to this episode of Freightonomics. Uh, we'll be back to our normal bat time next week, right? Next week. Next yeah. Week. Same time, Wednesday, 2, maybe. <laughs> 2 p.m. Maybe. Yeah. No. And of course, <laughs> download the FreightWaves TV app on podcast players everywhere. Just look up Freightonomics or look up FreightCast and get every FreightWaves podcast available. Hi. Right. Sure.